Chapter 8 of Four Day Planet by H. Beam Piper. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Four Day Planet. Chapter 8 Practice 50 Millimeter Gun. It seemed as though I had barely fallen asleep before I was wakened by the ship changing direction and losing altitude. I knew there were clouds coming in from the east now on the lower air currents and I supposed that Joe was taking the javelin below them to have a look at the surface of the sea. So I ran up to the conning tower, and when I got there I found that the lower clouds were solid over us. It was growing dark, and another hunter ship was approaching with her lights on. "'Who is she?' I asked. "'Bulldog, Nips Spazzoni,' Joe told me. "'Nips bringing my saloon fighter aboard, and he wants to meet Mr. Morell.' I remembered that the man who had roughed up the rabbit goon in Martian Joe's had made his getaway from town in the Bulldog. As I watched, the other ship's boat dropped out from her stern, went end over end for an instant, and then straightened out and came circling around astern of us, matching our speed and ejecting a magnetic grapple. Nip Spazzoni and another man climbed out with lifelines fast to their belts and crawled along our upper deck catching lifelines that were thrown out to them and snapping onto them before casting loose the ones from their boat. Somebody at the lock under the conning tower hauled them in. Nip Spazzoni's name was Old Terran Italian, but he had slanted mongoloid eyes and a sparse little chin-beard, which accounted for his nickname. The amount of intermarriage that's gone on since the first century, any resemblance between people's names and their appearances, is purely coincidental. Oscar Fujisawa, who looks as though his name ought to be Leif Erikson, for example. "'Here's your prodigal, Joe,' he was saying, peeling out of his parka as he came up the ladder. "'I owe him a second gunner's share on a monster, fifteen tons of wax.' Hey, that was a good one. You heading home now? Then he turned to the other man, who had followed Nip up the ladder. You didn't do a very good job, Bill, he said. The so-and-so's out of the hospital by now. Well, you know who takes care of his own, the crewman said. Give me something for effort. I tried hard enough. No, I'm not going home yet, Nip was answering. I have hold room for the wax of another one, if he isn't bigger than ordinary. I'm going to go down on the bottom when the winds start and sit it out, and then try to get a second one. Then he saw me. Well, hey, Walt, when did you turn into a monster hunter? Then he was introduced to Morell, and he and Joe and the man from Argentine Exotic Organics sat down at the chart table, and Joe yelled for a pot of coffee and they started talking prices and quantities of wax. I sat in, listening. This was part of what was going to be the big story of the year. Finally, they got that talked out, and Joe asked Nip how the monsters were running. "'Why, good. You ought to have any trouble finding one,' Nip said. "'There must have been a Niflheim of a big storm off to the east, beyond the Lava Islands. I got mine north of Cape Terror.' There's huge patches of sea spaghetti drifting west, all along the west of Herman Rauch's land. Here, he pulled out a map, you'll find it all along here. 
Morel asked me if sea spaghetti was something the monsters ate. His reading up still had a few gaps here and there. No, it's seaweed. The name describes it. Screwfish eat it, big schools of them follow it. Gulpers and funnel-mouths and bag-bellies eat screwfish, and monsters eat them. So, wherever you find spaghetti, you can count on finding a monster or two. "'How's the weather?' Joe was asking. "'Good enough now. It was almost full dark when we finished the cutting up. It was raining. In fifty or sixty hours it ought to be getting pretty bad.' Spazzoni pointed on the map. "'Here's about where I think you ought to try, Joe.' I screened the times after Nip went back to his own ship. Dad said that Bish Ware had called in, with nothing to report, but a vague suspicion that something nasty was cooking. Steve Raffick and Leo Belcher were taking things, even the announcement of the Argentine Exotics Organics price, too calmly. "'I think so myself,' he added. "'That gang has some kind of a knife up their sleeve.' Bish is trying to find out just what it is. "'Is he drinking much?' I asked. "'Well, he isn't on the wagon, I can tell you that,' Dad said. "'I'm beginning to think that he isn't really sober till he's half-plastered.' "'There might be something to that,' I thought. "'There are all kinds of weird individualities about human metabolism. For all I knew, alcohol might actually be a food for Bish.' or he might have built up some kind of immunity with antibodies that were themselves harmful if he didn't have alcohol to neutralize them. The fugitive, from what I couldn't bring myself to call justice, proved to know just a little, but not much, more about engines than I did. That meant that Tom would still have to take Al Devis's place, and I'd have to take his with the after-fifty-millimeter. So the ship went down to almost sea surface, and Tom and I went to the stern turret. The gun I was to handle was an old model Terran Federation Army Infantry Platoon accompanying gun. The mount, however, was power-driven, like the mount for a 90mm contragravity tank gun. Reconciling the firing mechanism of the former with the elevating and traversing gear of the latter, had produced one of the craziest pieces of machinery that ever gave an ordnance engineer nightmares. It was a local job, of course. An ordnance engineer in Port Sandor doesn't really have to be a raving maniac, but it's a help. Externally, the firing mechanism consisted of a pistol grip and trigger, which looked all right to me. The sight was a standard binocular light-gun sight, with a sponge-plastic mask to save the gunner from a pair of black eyes every time he fired it. The elevating and traversing gear was combined in one lever on a ball-and-socket joint. You could move the gun diagonally in any direction in one motion, but you had to push or pull the opposite way. Something would go plonk when the trigger was pulled on an empty chamber, so I did some dry practice at the crests of waves. Now mind, Tom was telling me, this is a lot different from a pistol. So I notice, I replied. I had also noticed that every time I got the crosshairs on anything and squeezed the trigger, they were on something else when the trigger went plonk. 
All this gun needs is another lever to control the motion of the ship. Oh, that only makes it more fun, Tom told me. Then he loaded in a clip of five rounds, big, expensive-looking cartridges a foot long, with bottleneck cases and pointed shells. The targets were regular tallow-wax skins, blown up and weighted at one end, so that they would float upright. He yelled into the intercom, and one was chucked overboard ahead. A moment later I saw it bobbing away astern of us. I put my face into the sight-mask, caught it, centered the crosshairs, and squeezed. The gun gave a thunderclap and recoiled past me, and when I pulled my face out of the mask I saw a column of water and spray about fifty feet left and a hundred yards over. "'You won't put any wax in the hole with that kind of shooting,' Tom told me. I fired again. This time there was no effect at all that I could see. The shell must have gone away over and hit the water a couple of miles astern. Before Tom could make any comment on that shot, I let off another, and this time I hit the water directly in front of the bobbing wax skin. Good line shot, but away short. "'Well, you scared him anyhow,' Tom said in mock commendation. I remembered some of the comments I'd made when I'd been trying to teach him to hit something smaller than the target frame with a pistol, and humbled myself. The next two shots were reasonably close, but neither would have done any damage if the rapidly vanishing skin had really been a monster. Tom clucked sadly and slapped in another clip. "'Heave over another one,' he called. "'That monster got away!' The trouble was, there were a lot of tricky air currents along the surface of the water. The engines were running on lift to match exactly the weight of the ship, which meant that she had no weight at all, and a lot of wind resistance. The drive was supposed to match the wind speed, and the ship was supposed to be kept nosed into the wind. A lot of that is automatic, but it can't be made fully so which means that the pilot has to do considerable manual correcting, and no human alive can do that perfectly. Joe Kyvelson, or Ramon Llewellyn, or whoever was at the controls, was doing a masterly job, but that fell away short of giving me a stable gun platform. I caught the second target as soon as it bobbed into sight, and slammed a shell at it. The explosion was half a mile away, but the shell hadn't missed the target by more than a few yards. Heartened, I fired again, and that shot was simply dreadful. "'I know what you're doing wrong,' Tom said. "'You're squeezing the trigger.' "'Huh?' I pulled my face out of the sight-mask and looked at him to see if he were exhibiting any other signs of idiocy. That was like criticizing somebody for using a fork instead of eating with his fingers. You're not shooting a pistol, he continued. You don't have to hold the gun on the target with the hand you shoot with. The mount control in your other hand does that. As soon as the crosshairs touch the target, just grab the trigger as though it was a million saws getting away from you. Well, sixteen thousand. That's what a monster's worth now, morale prices. Jerking won't have the least effect on your hold whatever. So... 
That was why I'd had so much trouble making a pistol shot out of Tom, and why it would take a special act of God to make one out of his father. And that was why monster hunters caused so few casualties in barroom shootings around Port Sandor, outside of bystanders and back-bar mirrors. I felt like Newton after he'd figured out why the apple bopped him on the head. "'You mean, like this?' I asked innocently, as soon as I had the hairs on the target again, violating everything I held most sacredly true about shooting. The shell must have passed within inches of the target. It bobbed over flat, and the weight pulled it up again into the back wave from the shell, and it bobbed like crazy. "'That would be one dead monster,' Tom said. "'Let's see you do it again.' I didn't. The next shot was terrible. Overconfidence. I had one more shot, and I didn't want to use up another clip of the javelin's ammo. They cost like crazy, even if they were army rejects. The sea current was taking the target farther away every second, but I took my time on the next one, bringing the horizontal hair level with the bottom of the inflated target and traversing quickly, grabbing the trigger as soon as the vertical hair touched it. There was a water spout, and the target shot straight up for fifty feet. The shell must have exploded directly under it. There was a sound of cheering from the intercom. Tom asked if I wanted to fire another clip. I told him I thought I had the hang of it now, and screwed a swab onto the ramrod and opened the breech to clean the gun. Joe Kyvelson grinned at me when I went up to the conning tower. That wasn't bad, Walt he said. You never manned a fifty-millimeter before, did you? No, and it's all backward from anything I ever learned about shooting, I said. Now, suppose I get a shot at a monster. Where do I try to hit him? Here, I'll show you. He got a block of lucite, a foot square on the end by two and a half feet long, out of a closet under the chart table. In it was a little figure of a Jarvis's sea monster long body tapering to a three-fluke tail, wide horizontal flippers like the wings of an old pre-contragravity aircraft, and a long neck with a little head and a wide tusked mouth. "'Always get him from in front,' he said. "'Aim right here, where his chest makes a kind of V at the base of the neck. A fifty-millimeter will go six or eight feet into him before it explodes.' and it'll explode among his heart and lungs and things. If it goes straight along his body, it'll open him up and make the cutting up easier, and it won't spoil much wax. That's where I always shoot. Suppose I get a broadside shot. Why, then put your shell right under the flukes at the end of the tail. That'll turn him and position him for a second shot from in front. But mostly, you'll get a shot from in front, if the ship's down near the surface. Monsters will usually try to attack the ship. They attack anything around their own size that they can see, he told me. But don't ever make a body shot broadside too. You'll kill the monster, but you'll blow about five thousand souls worth of wax to Niflheim doing it. It had been getting dusky while I had been shooting. It was almost full dark now, and the javelin's lights were on. We were making close to Mach 3, 
headed east now and running away from the remaining daylight. We began running into squalls of rain, and then rain mixed with wet snow. The underside lights came on, and the lookout below began reporting patches of sea spaghetti. Finally, the boat was dropped out and went circling away ahead, swinging its light back and forth over the water, and radioing back reports. Spaghetti. Spaghetti with a big school of screwfish working on it. Funnel-mouths working on the screwfish. Finally, the speaker gave a shrill whistle. "'Monster Ho!' the voice yelled. "'About ten points off your port bow. We're circling over it now.' "'Monster Ho!' Kyvelson yelled into the intercom, in case anybody hadn't heard. "'All hands to killing stations!' Then he saw me standing there, wondering what was going to happen next. "'Well, mister, didn't you hear me?' he bellowed. "'Get to your gun!' "'Gee,' I thought, "'I'm one of the crew now.' "'Yes, sir!' I grabbed the handrail of the ladder and slid down, then raced aft to the gun turret. End of chapter 8